Margaret has an amazing science fiction library, though. So like, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I well, that's an excuse. I get to buy this stuff for, you know, for work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is super cool. Let me find a citation for you, Margaret, because again, I know it's an old okay. story. Like it's old enough that it was one that I heard when I was a teenager. So like, it's like okay. All right. years ago, but I'll find the right citation because I feel, you know, we have to do that. What's what we do, Mike? Yes, yes. I mean, it's just blowing my mind right now, just eavesdropping in on this conversation because like I was inspired by Star Trek to study outer space and have these types of conversations about things out there. But you two study Star Trek. (laughs) Use that as your source of material. That's so cool. Hey everyone, it's been a while. Welcome to what I'm calling the summer season of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong, your host. Now, I know we don't really do seasons here, but I've got a bunch of exciting guests lined up between now and when I move across the country to start my new scientific position at Carnegie's Earth and Planets Laboratory, which, let's be honest, will probably entail another short break in podcasting. So we might as well call this the summer season of Strange New Worlds to sound fancy and pretend that I know what I'm doing over here. So, (laughs) I like to think that every episode of Strange New Worlds is a highlight, but the truest highlight of this summer is definitely going to be a live broadcast of Strange New Worlds at the Idic Podcast Festival, organized by our friends over at the Woman at Warp podcast. This fest is going to be the weekend of July 17 and 18, and Strange New Worlds has a whole hour beginning at 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time on Sunday, July 18. Again, that's 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time on Sunday, July 18. You can find more info about the festival, including how to stream it, and a list of all the other great podcasts that'll be there using the link in the show notes. I really hope I see you there. And now, on to today's show. I am so thrilled to introduce to you all historian Dr. Margaret Weidekamp and speak to her about the history of women in space and the history of women in Star Trek. My name is Margaret Weidekamp. I am the chair of the space history department at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, and my pronouns are she, her. Now, because I'm not a historian, I decided to beam in a special co-host for this episode. I'm Ingrid Okert. I am the marketing communications coordinator for the workforce development and education department at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. You last heard Dr. Ingrid Okert on episode 105 of Strange New Worlds, where we talked about her research into the relationship between science and Star Trek during Trek's inception in the 1960s. Beaming Ingrid aboard today's episode of Strange New Worlds was Honestly, one of the best decisions I've made recently, because as you'll see, she steers this conversation in some pretty great directions that I wouldn't have had the wherewithal to do. 
Now, a large fraction of this episode centers upon the recent documentary called Woman in Motion, which chronicles Nichelle Nichols' life and her work changing the face of the American space program to include more women and more people of color. If you haven't seen this documentary yet, it's currently streaming on Paramount+, and I encourage you to check it out. But if you don't have access to it right now, no worries at all. You definitely don't have to watch the documentary before listening to this episode. And with that, I think we're ready to go. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Margaret Weidekamp to Strange New Worlds and to welcome back Dr. Ingrid Ogert as my special co-host for today's episode, where we're going to dive into the topic of the history of women in space and the history of women in Star Trek. So, um, Margaret, since you're new to the show, let's get to know you a little bit more. You work as a historian in the Space History Department at Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum in uh, Washington, DC. That's certainly very different from anybody else that I've had on this show in the past. Could you please walk us through what your job entails? Sure. So I am the chair of the Space History Department at the Air and Space Museum, but in addition, I am the curator for what we call the History and Culture of Spaceflight Collection, which is basically I work with our objects that are space science fiction themed, as well as our memorabilia of the actual space program. So I like to say I work with the objects that really testify to how spaceflight has been imagined and how spaceflight has been remembered. Um, so the two halves of those I see is very interconnected. And so when I'm, whether I'm working with things that are memorabilia of Apollo 11, or whether I'm working with commercial toys that might've come from something like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon uh, or through to Star Trek, um, I think about them a lot in terms of what they tell us about the history and the people and the culture, the society that produced them. And it's a really rich collection to work with in terms of thinking about the history of spaceflight and how that broader social context shapes what's possible for real technologies. That's fantastic. And I know you did some work on the restoration of the original Enterprise model from the 60s TV show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. That was um, my own five-year mission was really working <laughs> on uh, the restoration. The museum has since 1974 had the original 11-foot studio model of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise. Um, it was coming to my attention. I was aware when I took the position in 2004 at the museum that uh, the model was on display in the basement of the gift shop. Uh, which had been a bit of a compromise uh, created by museum staff to try to save it from full-on Indiana Jones-style obscure storage, um, to keep it on the floor for the public. Uh, but over time, that was a less satisfactory location, and we could see that there were some suffering of the object itself just over time. Um, and so we really started this project of thinking about how would we move it? Where could we put it on display? And then the conservation of the object itself. Um, and in the end, what we were able to do was a 360 degree exhibit. It's uh, clear from all four sides. 
so that you can really see the artistry of what was created for this miniature and the ways that it exists both as the kind of star of the show, the character, mm -hmm. the Enterprise, and also as the prop that was necessary using the technologies of the time to get a spaceship in your television show in the late 60s. Awesome. Thank you for all your hard work on that project. I visited the Air and Space Museum last in 2018 and uh, definitely saw it on display out there in the lobby and uh, spent, I don't know, uh, probably like half an hour just walking around it and staring at it. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of that arrangement, um, which I would love if you could tell us a little bit about Margaret, is the way that it's in front of, um, it's in this you know beautiful case that's in front of a beautiful um, sort of landscape image of space, right? Right, so the, when the museum building was built and opened in 1976, they commissioned two original pieces of art. Um, one is on one wall, which was basically a mural of air um, and that is a wonderful um, mural that really looks uh, meteorologically at cloud formations and things like that. It's a, a beautiful, beautiful mural. These are actually hand painted on linen that is on the wall. So those have been removed in order to be restored. But right, the enterprise took advantage of the fact that we had the Robert McCall mural, which really had become a kind of iconic Thing. If you were at the National Air and Space Museum, probably some of your listeners have a picture of themselves standing in front of the astronaut holding the flag, because that's one of the kind of iconic picture spots that says my family has come on vacation or my, you know, staff yeah. troop has come on vacation to the museum. And there's where you stand to take your picture to prove that you're at the museum. Um, and so it was a wonderful thing to be able to have that artistry from Bob McCall kind of showing through the back of the case for the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. I love I love the juxtaposition in some ways of again sort of the 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 imagery of fiction, which is you know what the enterprise is in some ways, but sort of a way in which it also became reality, which is this picture of the the man on the moon, which is kind of what we're talking a bit about today in some ways, mm -hmm. right? Well, and McCall famously did some promotional images for 2001 A Space yeah. Odyssey in 1968. No, not art in the film, but art used to promote the film. He was someone who was very happy kind of playing across the imagination and the reality and or the speculation about what could be reality. So I had the pleasure of asking Ingrid about her Star Trek origin story on a previous episode of Strange New Worlds. Uh, but as this is the first time that I'm meeting you, Margaret, could you please tell us about your first contact with Star Trek and what role it's played in your life? So I have to confess that I'm a rather ecumenical science fiction fan. So I grew up as a Star Wars kid, had the action figures played out in the neighborhood with them, bringing them out in the yard. And so that was always a, a big part of my life. And I would say kind of, you know, as a, as a teenager and as I became a young adult, I was at the right age to really fall in love with um, Star Trek, especially around the next generation. Um, so that's what I was uh, watching and really enjoying. So I will say my kind of Star Trek origin story is just, that's always been a part of who I was, the kinds of things I liked to watch and think about, um, but it's not something that I thought I would be doing in any serious way. Um, but uh, my one story about it is that my now husband knew when we started dating that I was a big Star Trek fan. And so one of his first research trips out to Los Angeles, uh, he met up with a high school friend and went to a Star Trek convention. And so she, he brought me a little Lieutenant Worf 
act figure that I had on my desk. Um, and for our first Christmas together, he got me a copy of Mike and Denise Okuda's Star Trek Encyclopedia, which had just come yeah. out. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and so that's one of the signs, like, this is a keeper, like, you know, not just, <laughs> like, gets me, um, you know, and understands that I certainly didn't think that that book, which I had on my shelf for years as just, you know, super fun reference now is in my office because that's stuff that I get to work with more professionally, but, um, and it took a professional turn when I was a grad student at Cornell, they had this wonderful um, Jonathan Knight writing program and you could uh, teach about anything if you were teaching about writing. So you'd pick whatever subject you wanted, but then they also taught you how to teach about, you know, comma splices and semicolons and how to construct a paragraph. And you were teaching basically freshman comp. Um, but it could be anything. And so I created a space history and science fiction course because those just seemed like super fun things that they seemed very married together to, in my head. And so I taught that for a um, couple of semesters, really enjoyed it. Um, and then when I got my first job out of grad school, I was teaching women's studies at a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And I kind of initially was pitching, I can do feminist methodology. I can do, you know, all sort of qualitative work. Um, and they said like, could you do your Star Trek class? Like that seems super interesting. You know, our students would love that. I was like, yeah, you know, there's tons of great gender and race and societal stuff and history in there. And that's just an awful lot of fun, which is how when the National Air and Space Museum was looking for a social and cultural curator, I actually had several years of professional experience with Star Trek on my CV and was able to go in and say, well, you know, I've been teaching Star Trek for several years now. Um, and there's just a wonderful world of critical scholarly literature in the popular culture world from historians and anthropologists and sociologists and folks who have really dug into the rich text that is um, Star Trek. And so so I try to keep a foot in both camps, if you will, in terms of the Star Wars and Star Trek world, but I've really enjoyed um, the depth of the characters and the characterizations and the social commentary that you get with Star Trek. That's so amazing to hear how Star Trek has been a part of both your interests as uh, an extracurricular, but then also really formed uh, a major part of the backbone of your academic and professional life too. I dream of the day that somebody comes up to me and asks, Mike, could you teach a Star Trek class? <laughs> you have to volunteer to teach it. That's the thing. Nobody asked you to, but if given the, you know, when they give you the little crack in the doorway, you have to just jam it through. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a great segue into my next question, which is about how Star Trek has always really prided itself as being a forward thinking show and trying to push us into a more diverse and inclusive reality by showing us a more diverse and inclusive future on screen. And over the past 55 years, we've gone from just one woman on the bridge, you know, albeit in a very groundbreaking role in Lieutenant Uhura, to our uh, first female captain in the 90s series, Star Trek Voyager, to a woman of color captain now in the 2020s with Michael Burnham on Star Trek Discovery. And so this question is for both of you as fans of the show and as historians, how do you see the evolution of female representation on Star Trek? I think that's a really great question. And while I'm buying myself some time thinking about it, I, I wondered if actually this actually goes to one of the questions I had, if Margaret would be okay with talking about sort of the the context of female representation in space in the 1960s. Because I feel like that's a good place to start thinking about this. 
Very much so, um, because there really wasn't any, right? This is right. where, you know, you still had women only in the secretarial positions or in nursing when you're looking at the space program in the 1960s. Um, and there had been this very short episode of looking at women as test subjects who were pilots and thinking about whether they could be fit for space. And there, um, it's a book I've written, Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, about this early women's astronaut testing project. And part of what's fascinating about that was that on the one hand, they're looking at women and women's bodies and thinking, how can women be fit enough to go into space? And that's a kind of revolutionary thing in the history of medicine to start thinking about women as capable. Um, and on the other hand, the doctor who was running that was very much a product of his time. And he's thinking, you know, we're going to have these huge orbiting space stations like we've, you know, eventually we're going to see in things like 2001, A Space Odyssey. And if you're going to have a large military installation in space, you're going to need secretaries and you're going to need nurses and you're going to need telephone operators. And we need to know whether women can survive the trip. And so his inclusion is in some ways, a, you know, very much a product of its time. And in interesting ways then to bridge back to Star Trek, right? One of the things that Roddenberry was doing with this more diverse crew of men and women working together of different races, different nationalities, even an alien, clearly this is very far in the future. Right. Visually, mm -hmm. the idea that you would have women in those kinds of positions, you know, working equally with men is supposed to be your kind of a first immediate visual cue that this is not now, yeah. um, which is still that moment with the beginning of the second wave of the women's movement, still in the midst of the civil rights movement, still well ahead of that kind of practical, functional integration. And going off of that, I, I, I'm thinking about early examples of women on TV and space related shows. And I can really only think of Lost in Space, which where there are some women on, you know, on the spaceship, but they're really only there as family members, right? Right. And, and I that's know kind of classic 50s, you know, style yeah. um, family sitcom. Right, exactly. And this, this reminds me of um, something from your book, Margaret, which uh, I checked out from the public library before I did this episode, which is really amazing. It's a great book. Um, I feel like I should do a call out. It's called Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's First Women in Space Program. And sort of you talk about in this book how one of the reasons that women are considered as possible astronaut recruitments is because of this idea that, well, there was this sort of very gendered idea about whether the men in these space programs needed to have a, you know, a family member to kind of keep them sort of balanced, I guess. I feel like it's a really weird way to phrase it. Could you tell us a little right. more about that? There was that? a lot of speculation about whether it would help or hurt kind of the camaraderie in a spacecraft if you had a, a mixed sex group, you know, and again, they're not necessarily thinking small space capsules, but these kind of very big expansive space stations. And then there was also the science around women by testing did better in isolation and in sensory deprivation tests especially in the 1950s. Oh. And you saw that in Britain and you saw that in Canada, a couple of places. And I think that kind of there's the science and then there's, it's coupled with some very cultural ideas about you can't ask men to just sit there, but women would be capable of kind of perhaps being locked in. There was a lot of worry before spaceflight began about the kind of sensory deprivation that would come with this stuff. And, um, and so alternately, a lot of fears about how someone would, survive in the kind of very rudimentary spacecraft, even as they're thinking almost immediately about these incredibly advanced space stations, 
that they're hoping will be just a hop and a skip and a jump from there. And I think that you see bits of that in the Star Trek universe where, yeah. you know, you're kind of moving from place to place uh, quite easily. And then the whole, you know, backstory of that gets developed over time. Yeah. And so like, I, again, I think that's a really interesting thing about like, you know, these visions of, of camaraderie um, in space. And so yeah, Star Trek, to go back to your question, like, is an example of which is important this show, because before Star Trek, you really don't have women shown as being valuable members of a crew, not just like someone's mom or someone's kid sister who's brought along. So and I think it's really interesting to see in every evolution and every um, new series, the ways that I mean, to think, to be honest, I think one of the most important things about Star Trek is it's also shown that you don't have to be this like supermodel, attractive woman to be on a show about space. Because I mean, you know, that was something that was, you know, you would see in the 1960s as well. I'm thinking about another representation of women in space in the 60s is I Dream a Genie, which is kind of a weird one, right, Margaret? That is an unusual one. And um there's uh, some great literature on that. Um, Lynn Spiegel has written a, a bunch about about that, about the ways that you know you've got this kind of um, magical woman who's you know pestering and bothering the hierarchical uh, male organization, which is NASA. So um, yeah. Yes. But that's um, like, again, so like, you know, there's this idea, well, broadcasters have people who are putting together TV shows that, well, if you have a woman who's at all associated with space, well, of course, she needs to be really this conventionally attractive white, you know, blonde woman. And that's the amazing thing to see with Star Trek in every series, how, you know, they can show no that you can have, you know, a talented actress who's not conventionally you know, attractive or a, a, an actress who is not you know, a conventional image of who can be anything, you know, in that role, which is really amazing. Yeah. And so small her- quibble being that Nichelle Nichols and Majel Barrett were stunning. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. And, and, and I think- um, yeah. And uh, the National Museum of African-American History um, acquired a season one Lieutenant Uhura costume, which I've gotten to see in person. I was very excited to um, to get to see that. And one of the things that is striking is just how short that skirt is. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, really basically comes with knickers that are kind of intended to pop out a little bit below the length of, of the barely butt covering skirt. And um, Nichelle Nichols as a, a a dancer and a singer and somebody who had done you know much musical theater was able to handle quite such a 60s mod outfit with the boots and the very 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 short skirt yeah and i feel like i should say in all the other series there are people who are wonderful and very attractive and great in all the shows and as well as i know that there are conversations about gender and costumes and the next generation right with you know sort of Mm -hmm. the latex suits and all of that yes but so again, costume, super important part of, you know, television, you know, and space messaging, I suppose. But, and it's interesting. It's yeah. one of the things that the Smithsonian that we kind of split across different museums. Um, and I don't know if people often think about that because, you know, we are the Smithsonian Institution. Um, we don't compete with each other, but we have different parts of this story told in different places. So the National Air and Space Museum has the large hero spacecraft model model because there's this interest within our museum of telling these stories about what would it look like to be a spacefaring people and that spaceship is really one of the you know revolutionary new ideas I mean arguably every spaceship since has had to compete with or at least live up to the standards set by Matt Jeffrey's design for the Enterprise yeah. um, 
But the Uhura costume has ended up over at African-American history and culture because that depiction of the character is so important and has so much history as a very important depiction in the midst of the civil rights movement for an African-American woman. It resonates in different ways in that historical setting. And in some ways, I, at the National Air and Space Museum, as a curator there, have not collected costume very often because it's an art designer's idea of what might look good on set for a particular thing, but it doesn't necessarily tell us something about how people are imagining space flight in the way that, you know, so I end up in the collection working more on things that look like pieces of space suits, you know, places where people are playing with pieces of space suits or spacecraft, but then the kind of flat out costume will end up in other parts of the Smithsonian at American history and African-American history and culture. So it's a fun part of being able to kind of turn the prism and see all of these different sides of this rich cultural object, this rich cultural product, and then pull the bits that go to different parts because they have different stories to tell. That is so cool. Amazing. I, my my mind is just being blown and stretched in all sorts of different ways right now. I think this is wonderful. I didn't know that women were being considered as astronauts in the early days of the space race in the in the 60s and the early 70s, but only to serve as sort of this like, you know, filling out the role of a secretary to augment like a man's job uh, in space. And I was wondering if we can relate this back to Uhura as a, as a science fiction character in the 60s, because when I I watch the original series now, I see Uhura's role as both the historical icon that it is now, like you said, a very important and pivotal role for African-Americans. Also, I see it as, oh, is she just being like the secretary for Kirk and answering hails for him and like hailing frequencies open, Captain, you know, th- things like that. Uh, and was was this sort of attitude towards women in the actual space program reflected in Uhura's role on the bridge of the Enterprise? Well, there are ways in which, right, she's a telephone operator, right? You know, mm-hmm. plugging in uh, these trunk lines to, you know, to connect spaceships, except it's not the physical line that used to be a very women's pink collar job. You know, and she herself has talked very publicly, um, and there's a wonderful new documentary out about it, um, about the ways that um, she got increasingly frustrated with. She knew Gene Roddenberry from doing a little bit of work with him on The Lieutenant when Roddenberry was working on that. And so when he was creating this new show, she was one of the people who he brought in to be on his new show with Desilu uh, being in uh, Star Trek. And then she really felt like she wasn't used very well that you know every time she looked at the script her part got a little bit smaller and eventually all she said was hailing frequencies open she was never in the on the away teams she wasn't a part of the adventures and there's a a famous story that you know at the end of the second season she had actually turned in her resignation to Gene Roddenberry and I have to just show off tiny, tiny bit. Um, she <laughs> came to the National Air and Space Museum about 10 years ago. She was in D.C. because she was doing a performance at the Kennedy Center oh. for NASA, um, a musical performance, because she had always, uh, you know, her first love was always musical theater and cabaret and singing. So she ended up at the National Air and Space Museum. And the person who was working with her, who was taking her around from NASA, asked me essentially, like, would you be willing to just take care of her for an hour? Because I have these other things I have to do. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes, I will spend an hour with Nichelle Nichols. And as it happens, I was writing an article about the lieutenant or her character and kind of how it had evolved over time. And so I, you know, grabbed my recorder and came downstairs to meet her. And so she ended up telling me this story. Um, and we have this wonderful picture of me sitting there very calmly holding my recorder as she tells me this story. And of course, inside I'm jumping up and down like a 12 year old, um, <laughs> but trying to keep on, you know, professional historian face. And um, that she went to an NAACP event and was told that there was someone there who would like to meet her and turns around and of course is the Reverend um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And they had a whole conversation about how, you know, Star Trek was one of the shows that he and Coretta Scott King allowed the kids to watch because they really liked that it was a working example of what race integration could look like. And so she, you know, said of how nice that was and apologized and said, you know, she's sorry to say she's leaving the show. And he famously said, you know, you cannot, um, if you allow that door to shut, who knows how long it'll be before it opens again. And of course she finished out the, the show and then continued with the films. Um, and that iconic character has been just so very important um, that in fact for next generation when it was announced that Gene Roddenberry was bringing back a version of Star Trek Whoopi Goldberg called Roddenberry and requested to be written into the show wanted a character because um, as she put it you know seeing Nichelle Nichols on screen as not a maid in a position of power, working equally with other people, and also just simply in the world of science fiction, which was so relentlessly white in the 1950s. Yeah. You know, as a comedian, her line was, you know, this was the first sign that Black folks had made it to the future at all. And so I just think those connections to that broader history of representation have been so, so important. And I was pleased to be able to include that story in the article that I was writing and go home and rip up the footnote that I had of, you know, where I had heard that story told otherwise. And like, as told. Too <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, that's, that's such a cool story. And, and what a, a powerful story to record as well. Margaret, you also mentioned this documentary um, called Woman in Motion it came out recently streaming on Paramount Plus, And I had the pleasure of viewing it. And, you know, there is somebody in that documentary who is also on this Zoom call, and that's you. <laughs> so uh, how were you approached to be interviewed for Women in Motion, and what did it mean to you to be a part of that documentary? It really was exciting. So um, I was approached by the filmmakers because, you know, I've written about this stuff and from my position at the museum, I've had the opportunity to speak publicly as a scholar interested in these kinds of questions. And this was a story that I had straight from um, Ms. Nichols herself. So that was a nice opportunity to bring it in. Uh, but in the end, honestly, as I've watched the documentary, the um, caliber of the other folks that they got, that I get to say I share even a tiny bit of screen time with is astounding. Um, so I really thought that they backed up their lens in a way that was really very useful and getting, you know, just the caliber of the people who were talking about what a difference that vision made, you know, from um, Fred Gregory as an African-American astronaut himself to someone like John Lewis talking about, you know, the power of that popular culture representation and what he was doing with the movement. I just think, you know, they did a beautiful 
wonderful job of putting that together and then also letting her have her own voice and tell her own story. And I think, you know, the chance to be even noodling around the edges in, in any part of that was great fun. For those listeners who may not have watched the documentary yet, would one of you guys be willing just to kind of recap it? So it's essentially a biography of Nichelle Nichols. And part of what it does is it uh, really reveals things that I think many people haven't necessarily known about how much she really became a spaceflight advocate and that she was hired by NASA in 1978 when they were getting ready to announce the astronaut candidates for the 1978 class for the space shuttle. So before that, you only had pilot astronauts, which meant that you had um, men who had really come out of military jet test flying. And that was a very exclusive, but also exclusionary path into the astronaut corps. There were no women who qualified for that. Um, the men who were in that first group of seven astronauts were an extraordinarily talented group of pilots and military officers, but they were also so homogenous in how they looked um, that they literally learned to line up in alphabetical order so that the newspapers would get the captions right uh, because people wouldn't necessarily know them by face. Later, of course, you can pick John Glenn out of a picture, but, um, you know, when at the time before everybody knew exactly who they were, that was one of the things that happened. So this really was the story then of how um, Nichelle Nichols was hired on a contract by NASA when they wanted a more diverse astronaut corps. And so they were looking not only for pilot astronauts, but for mission specialists, which meant they were looking for people with professional degrees with PhDs, with uh, medical degrees who would be the researchers. And that's a much more diverse pool, especially from the 1970s on. And so that meant that they were going to be able to fulfill one of their goals, which was to have an astronaut corps that reflected better the face of America. Um, and so they hired Nichelle Nichols, and she did a public relations campaign, visiting campuses, visiting cities, um, radio spots, television spots, in-person appearances, kind of blending the Lieutenant Uhura personality with her own advocacy um, and making this campaign that there's space for everyone. And so there are astronauts who have directly credited their decision to apply for the astronaut corps to that campaign and to the voice that NASA uh, gave to Nichelle Nichols to be their spokesman to talk about the real interest in having a more diverse astronaut course, specifically having people of color apply. Yeah, I, I'm super glad for this documentary's existence yeah. to share this incredible work that she did. I, I really didn't know too much about it. I mean, I first heard about Nichelle's role in recruiting women and people of color for NASA at a Star Trek convention that I attended in the early 2010s when she spoke and, and mentioned something about this. I was in college at the time, right? And I was studying planetary science and taking astrophysics courses um, and definitely procrastinating on studying for my exams by being at the Star Trek convention. And when I heard Nichelle speak about her NASA work, I was blown away. You know, I had no idea that Uhura, you know, after she retired from Starfleet, went on to have a career with NASA, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is like the space organization that I, you know, had hoped to join uh, at that time as a, as a college student. You know, that that aspirational goal of mine was to yeah. uh, reach NASA. And um, but but that was just like a small comment at a Star Trek convention. I really didn't get the full picture, the full story, the full her her whole determination to do this. 
and bring people of color and women into the space program until I watched this documentary. So that was really amazing. Back in the day when I was doing my doctoral work and I had a fellowship at NASA headquarters in the history office, you know, you got to have a desk that was kind of right in amongst the stacks of all of the documents and things like that. So you were kind of, you know, you had the privilege being um, in the room for a year to kind of go dig through stuff. And somebody had pointed out to me that they had the binder oh. that she had turned in that, you know, like this is the report of everything that she had done. And so it had a map and a list in the, of the places she had gone and things like that. And, um, you know, and that wasn't quite what I was looking for as a researcher in terms of uncovering the story about the women pilots who had taken these kind of abortive astronaut tests in the late fifties, but I really kind of filed it away as like that exists there. And I'm not quite sure what to do with it. And I need to finish the dissertation because that's the mantra of the grad school thing is like, do not allow yourself to go off on all of the million tangents you would like to You have to finish the one project you said you would write. But I had kind of filed that away in the back of my head. And so um, 10 years ago, when I had a chance to meet Ms. Nichols, I was working on the article that I thought like, this will be my first chance to kind of tap into this stuff that I saw years before. And it's nice to see it come in such um, a fully well-rounded version as what they were finally able to put together for the documentary. It's nice to see more people getting to know this story. I really appreciated the testimonials and the memories that um, the the folks who were directly recruited shared about listening to um, the radio advertisements. Like that was super amazing, right? Had you heard some of those stories before, Margaret? I had, and I think that it's one of the things that, you know, people hadn't thought about the legacy of this historic discrimination, right? That simply opening the door and saying NASA is now interested in a more diverse astronaut pool was not quite enough to convince folks who have, you know, nice fat CVs and, you know, professional credentials and could go anywhere they want with their research work, um, that you should jump through all the hoops to become an astronaut and join this government program and do these things. So I thought that it was interesting when you try to look at these historic problems, you know, why aren't there more women in STEM? Why aren't there more people of color in these technological fields? And you kind of come back to there's the exclusionary policies and things. And then there's a kind of long Mm -hmm. lag, even after you start to change those of the places where there is, you know, just embedded bias, where there's a, you know, or even just a sense that this isn't the kind of thing that expect people expect from someone like me. And I'm going to have to push harder to be on that path. You know, I could go someplace where I don't have to push so hard, you know? And so you see things that even today, far more college students, for instance, who are people of color who are in a STEM field are far more likely to change their major, like 40% will change their major where it's only, you know, 20% or so for white students who are in STEM fields. Um, And so you've got this kind of leaking in the pipeline, if you will, of, you know, people who were interested, who got to start and then decide, you know, maybe this isn't for me and how much kind of encouraging and mentoring and support it takes to plug those leaks and to try to help people to, you know, more fully basically redress some of these exclusionary policies of the past, that it's not simply enough to say, oh, that's over. You know, we're no longer overtly discriminatory. (laughs) We now are going to allow anyone in. It's like, well, you know, it's not that fast. Um, And so I thought this was a great example of being able to see how important that kind of very public advocacy can be. 
I think, again, what was really interesting was to get a sense from watching the documentary how um, there had been so much administrative turnover at NASA by the 1970s. Is that something that is an accurate generalization to make, Margaret, from what you know as a historian? I think what you see in the 1960s is this juggernaut, if you will, that has been created, that is created by Kennedy's decision to go to the moon, which kind of lines everything in human spaceflight, at least up into this, you know, narrow channel of this is the goal, this is where we're going. And I think people forget sometimes how early that decision is made, right? It's really in 1961, Kennedy gets up and says, we're going to go to the moon before this joint session of Congress. And at that point, NASA had 15 minutes of human spaceflight experience, wow. right? Alan Shepard's flight is the only thing that's gone up. And he's saying, we're going to go a quarter of a million miles to the moon, land, walk around, turn around and come back. You know, the astronauts always emphasize the, and return him safely to the earth part of the sentence. That, you know, that's the important bit. It's not just to go there, but get them safely back. Um, and so that vision, I think, in many ways had really shaped in human spaceflight what was being done in NASA. And then for shuttle, you get an expansion because also that very exclusive astronaut corps that's announced in 1959-1960 is seen as at the top of the pyramid as exclusive as a sign of quality. Wow. Um, and then over time becomes, a, it's ex, it's also exclusive in that there were lots of people who never had access to get to the top of that pyramid. So although you had people who were really very talented and extraordinarily brave and very, very good at what they did and, you know, flat out American heroes in the Mercury astronauts and the Apollo astronauts who came after, by the late 1970s, that's just not politically tenable to say this is our whole group who's going to represent us going into space. And then you've got the kind of cultural power of these visions like Star Trek, which are, so, you know, like showing a very different vision of what that could look like. And with the documentary, I love the place where, you know, that connection actually got made by NASA of like, here's the vision of what we want, <laughs> men and women of different races going into space successfully together. Um, and Michelle Nichols is able to uh, bring that to their doorstep. Yeah, Margaret, could you talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Was it Dr. Von Puttkammer, uh, who who gave a science of Star Trek talk at one of these early conventions, and that's really where Nichelle Nichols sort of realized that there was this representation issue in the U.S. space program, and realized that she wanted to do something about that. I don't know too much about uh, Dr. Van Puttkammer, and uh, was it a big deal that he would go to a Star Trek? convention at the time? What was exactly the symbiosis between fandom and, you know, real life space scientists and engineers? So I think part of what people may not remember um, or have realized is how much crossover there was, how many times, you know, NASA did often see science fiction conventions as a way that they, you know, as an audience that would be likely to be receptive to and enthusiastic about what they were trying to do in real life. And so sending representatives like Von Puttkammer to go and present about here's what NASA is really doing, connected with people. And I think, you know, that sometimes we've 
since then put this big line between the fictional and the real. And um, at the time they saw, you know, a fair amount of bleed over, at least in the people who would be kind of bottom up, very enthusiastic about this. And in fact, then um, Nichelle Nichols, that really lit a fire for her. And so by the time she actually gets to be asked to do this campaign for NASA. This is not her first time on a NASA compound. This is not her first time. You know, she's been interested for some time in what the real space program is doing. So it was a really natural transition for her to move over into talking more actively about how she might be involved and how she might get other talented people involved. And she told the story in the documentary, and I've got it in the article uh, from her. I remember her telling me, you know, that she sat down with um, Fletcher, who was the NASA administrator at the time, and said, listen, like, if I do this, you have to take these people. You must take them seriously. Like, I am not going to put my name out there and go out and recruit for people for NASA, only to have you turn around and um, produce another astronaut class that looks exactly like all the astronaut classes that you've had. You have to really be committed to investing in this vision. And he said, you know, I will absolutely back that. He would absolutely support that. And so um, I think there's a great combination there of, of her personal dynamism, but also her determination of, you know, and speaking of truth to power and saying, you know, I will not do this work if you're not going to follow it up and turn it into real change and give real people an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a really important dynamic that it was both Nichelle Nichols' determination, but then also this welcoming and forward-thinking nature of the NASA administrators at the time. That's something that I wanted to ask you about, because the documentary painted NASA of the 70s and 80s as very forward-thinking, whose administrators like internally realized that they had a diversity problem in the astronaut applicants. And was this actually true, or was there actually some resistance to diversification within NASA, just as we saw resistance to, you know, the civil rights movements and other aspects of American society. So there's a great book uh, by Richard Paul and Stephen Moss, um, and we could not fail, about the first African-American engineers who came to work for NASA. And really the, you know, from an early co-op program in the early 1960s, and the ways that some of them really were encountering outright hostility sometimes when they walked in the room and various women who've talked about their work at NASA, you know, Joanne Morgan or Poppy Northcutt or some of the women who were in the very first in their very public fields have stories about places where they uh, were not always welcomed. So I think what you get with anything like this is a real mix, you know, that NASA is a federal agency. So it is subject to uh, federal regulations about diversity. And so, you know, uh, Richard and Stephen uncovered these wonderful, you know, letters and memos where, you know, NASA headquarters is writing down to Von Braun and saying, you know, I need to see more improvement in uh, the numbers of hires of African-Americans at the Marshall Space Flight Center at some of these centers in the South. And, you know, in the meantime, they're also in the midst of the, you know, some of the fieriest moments in the civil rights movement in that era. And um, so trying to reconcile those things. Um, there is a great story that um, Richard captured, um, Richard Paul, whose book this is, about Julius Montgomery, who is an engineer. Um, there's an award 
named for him at a university that at first he was not able to attend. NASA needed um, all of the engineers to take a training program. The local university was a segregated university and they would not allow an African-American in their classrooms. And the manager essentially called Julius Montgomery and said, listen, I need you to withdraw your name from this and we'll see what we can do. And like next year, we will have done the work and we will have figured this out. And he voluntarily withdrew his name from this program, which would have helped with his own professional advancement so that he could be a part of kind of helping them to figure out they needed a year to kind of get their head around. They were going to admit an African-American man. Um, and then, of course, the next year he he joined that program. And since then, that university mm. celebrates him um, mm. as one of the pioneering people. So I think that the stories of integration, when you look at them historically, are so often you know, hinge on individuals. Um, so there's the kind of the policy stuff and what people are trying to do. And then there's the dynamics of, you know, one-on-one and finding the people who are willing to mentor, who are willing to support, who are willing to see uh, advancement opportunities for other folks and support them as they go through. And the complexity of that, I think, is always part of what's fascinating to me as an historian is trying to kind of wrap your heads around, you know, what does that look like in the historical past so that we can kind of better understand how we might see some of that now. And some of that is very much about policy and numbers and statistics and who's available and who's in the pipeline. And then some of it is also about these broader cultural contexts of what do people think is possible. As great of a documentary as Women in Motion is, uh, I did have one criticism of the film, which is that for a documentary about Nichelle Nichols, there were very few women of color besides Nichelle in the film uh, and speaking. And so I was wondering what you both thought of that and if there were any other, um, you know, things that you think that this documentary could have done better from a historian's perspective. Did they have, I'm trying to remember, I haven't watched it very recently. Is Mae Jemison one so of the So they ones? mention Mae Jemison and show a picture of her um, when they talk about how Mae credits Nichelle, but for some reason didn't interview Mae or perhaps they tried and just uh, weren't able to reach her. Um, but yeah, that was Dr. one- Dr. Jemison tends to be very busy and not the easiest person to get. I've, mm-hmm. um, although, you know, given the opportunity, she's wonderful and very insightful at what um, she's doing because she's doing a lot of work around the thousand year starship and thinking kind of about very advanced spaceflight uh, techniques and kind of very, very, you know, conceptually long, long duration spaceflight. So, um, yeah, I think that would have been good. And I do think it's one of the things that is in some ways um, characteristic often of how uh, the civil rights movement gets written about in history, right, where we tend to focus on the more prominent uh, African-American men, the reverence, the, who were the, the leaders and the speakers and the dynamic out in the front. And one of the things that you see people writing more about um, in the history of the civil rights movement is noticing the ways that um, a lot of times the organizing the, you know, who has the sandwiches, who has the brochures, who has the, you know, who is organizing how things are going, is the women. Um, And you see that in pop culture studies as well with, you know, uh, people like Henry Jenkins have really pointed out um, the many women who were involved in the early Star Trek fandom and who did the organizing of that. um, And that that often doesn't get um, celebrated enough. So I have diverged from your critique of the film, but I think that it's an insightful one, the way that not women's voices don't always get included enough. 
I can jump in there and I can say I, what I thought was interesting that they talk about was the ways, the roles of um, women's social clubs in as a place where Nichelle Nichols would go and travel and talk to folks about the, the program and the recruitment drive. Um, because so often we lose the small clubs as an important part of, especially I would say, post-war American sort of non-specialist education you see a lot they sort of like i i studied at one point the aec and women's luncheon clubs were super important as sites of uh information for um, aec i'm not remembering oh, the atomic energy commission right oh. so right right in the 19 <laughs> i just sorry. wasn't making Thank the you. connection with, i can't yeah. for a women's social club called the aec yeah. but okay no, no. Thank so, you for asking, because i've never heard of that similarity yeah, yeah. <laughs> When you get to be a historian, you have so many acronyms, you get lost in the weeds. So in the in the 1950s, it was very important um, for um, scientists who were associated with the Atomic Energy Commission to visit small lunch clubs around the United States and talk to people there who were non-scientists about, you know, important scientific topics. And so I really thought it was interesting in the film that um, Michelle Nichols talked about doing that, like similarly going and visiting, you know, these luncheon clubs and doing that, and then also going to conferences and really going to try to meet people where they were at. So in terms of talking about off of your point, Margaret, you know, the ways that the uh, there are other, you know, certainly women who usually appear in these stories who are not there. I mean, I think they sort of did, they did allude to that a bit, I felt. Um, and I think, I guess what I thought was really interesting was that I, I saw the focus on Michelle really as sort of the, the sole um, woman of color that they really talked about and focused on the film as a way just to sort of really focus on one person, but move us through events. And one thing I thought they did very well that I was really moved by was their depiction of Challenger, right? Mm. The Challenger explosion. Yes, yes. Um, and I thought they did a very good job very quickly kind of moving the viewer through the cultural impact of those explosions and how it related to that um, initial recruitment drive. Because I think there was a real moment there where people wondered, you know, will this program survive this kind of a disaster and what does that do to that i mean there was when you go back and you look into the documentary history and all you know other things from that there's a moment from 81 to 80 that early january of 86 where there's just so much optimism about what's possible with this and the pace of change that people can expect to see and you know challenger really fundamentally changes that trajectory so yes that was a, a place where i thought they they did a good job with that and trying to, um, I thought they also did a very nice job with, um, which honestly, it was challenging for them, I imagine, is how much they were able to really let um, Ms. Nichols tell her own story. You know, we know that um, she has had some medical issues. We know that she's aging. And so that's always one of the challenges in, as an historian is kind of finding that moment between when people are old enough to kind of be reflective and want to sit down and talk to you about what they did um, with some distance to it and then their ability to convey that story themselves. And so as someone who has done oral histories, I think you're always trying to hit that moment when you can, if you get to people at some level too early in their life, they're not interested necessarily in reflecting or they haven't thought about, or they don't, you know, they don't see this importance of sitting down in this moment to record who they were um, or what they did. And then, you know, on the other end of it, you risk hitting a moment when somebody has had some medical issues that make it hard for them 
to express themselves as well as they once did or to, um, and are not always happy with what that looks like on camera. So um, I thought they did a very nice job with her recollections and just knitting them together in a way that I thought, you know, preserved her dignity and gave you a sense of, of her voice and the force of who she has been. Um, mm-hmm. And that I think is a nice credit to the filmmakers to giving her that voice throughout the film. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, Nichelle Nichols has been struggling with some some of those medical issues, but you know she she's a very strong woman, and uh, and I mean still has a beautiful voice, a singing voice. At the end of the documentary, yeah. there is that uh, piece of her in the studio singing the songs. Amazing, she sings better than I could ever dream <laughs> of being able to sing. Um, And, uh, you know, at the end of the doc, she also states that we haven't even begun to begin, which I guess hints that we still have a long way to go towards achieving true equity and representation in the space program. So I guess um, turning history inside out and thinking about the future now, what next steps do you envision for both the near and the long-term future for the space program? What, What kind of change would you like to see going forward? So I'll say as an historian, I always hesitate to speculate, but we, um, but I love keeping track of what's going on and what's possible. I think we're seeing a real turn in the commercial space flight venue, you know, in that space, if you will, where, you know, we've got companies that we've been talking about, you know, since the early eighties, they've been talking about the need for space flight to kind of transition from this government sponsored thing into something that would be done more with private companies. Um, I think it's exciting that NASA is making this commitment and going back to the moon with the Artemis program that they're looking at putting the first woman and they've now started also saying in the first person of color on the moon. And I think that that kind of representation is uh, incredibly important. You know, we've recently seen Victor Glover as a resident on the International Space Station, which makes him the first African-American resident on the International Space Station, um, which is kind of astounding in that that's been up for 20 years. And there have been African-Americans who have visited, but none had been assigned Mm -hmm. as a crew member to stay um, and to do that at kind of extended stay. So... um, I think that you know those kinds of directions are interesting. And then the other thing that at the museum I'm always looking at is, you know, in terms of planetary exploration, things like that, when we put the pictures up of, you know, who's working on these latest teams that are going to be going to Venus or who is working on things that are on Mars or who's working on exoplanets. I think you see, you know, more and more women in the room. You see more and more people of color in the room. You see, you know, a more and more international teams really working together rather than this kind of very cold war model where, you know, each nation has its teams working together. Um, but you also see other parts of the world participating in spaceflight in different ways. Bangladesh, you know, within the last couple of years, put its first communications satellite up. India um, has reached Mars. So, um, you know, Israel is working actively on uh, going to the moon. You know, China has uh, Taikonauts um, on a space station right now. Um, So that kind of stuff I just think is fascinating and trying to keep a a finger on the threads. And um, and then, you know, the historian's unpopular party trick is to step forward and say, that's not new, right? Here are, the, here are the ways that this is part of much longer trends that we've seen beforehand. Um, 
And, um, you know, and here are the ways in which it is slightly new, but here are the ways in which this has real historical antecedents. And, um, and so that part, I don't often speculate about what might happen, but I do love keeping a hand in what is happening and how we might be fitting that into the stories that we tell at the museum to our public about, you know, this is how you help to understand how we've gotten where we are and therefore from here where we might go through the next thing. And I've got a question on that, speaking about, you know, people keeping their hands and what's going on at the museum. Are there any other Star Trek actors who have stopped by the National Air and Space Museum? We've had a nice, uh, over time, so there was a very popular Star Trek exhibit that was at the museum in the 1990s, and all of the original cast came for that. Uh, we have people who come through town when they are doing local conventions or things like that, so we've enjoyed that tremendously. So, uh, and then we often are keeping on in touch with people in terms of social media, things like that. So it's fun to see um, what's going on, especially also as we come out of this COVID moment when we've all been um, relegated to various Zoom screens and not able to gather. You know, I think we're looking forward to the places where we'll be able to have some of that cross-pollination again by having, you know, people in person. So, um, you know, you do have a lot of fun, you know, someone like Michael Dorn, uh, who played um, uh, Lieutenant Worf has come through, who's, you know, a pilot and who is, you know, just actually less interested in talking to us about Star Trek and more interested in us showing him all of the airplanes and going through <laughs> saying, flew that, flew that, flew that, want to be in that. Wow. Um, and, um, and so that's always a lot of fun to see the places where those things cross. Along similar lines, do you think that NASA should and could harness the power of science fiction today in today's media age to have a similar effect to what Nichelle did um, a couple of decades ago for them? For instance, could Sonequa Martin-Green from Star Trek Discovery or another figure uh, from a recent Trek spinoff have the same kind of effect that Nichelle Nichols did if they were to partner with NASA today? Mm -hmm. I think NASA tends to be very savvy of late, especially about um, their social media presence has been very strong for a very long time. Uh, I believe it was Mike Massimino was the first one to tweet from space, um, <laughs> but they, you know, have regularly um, NASA headquarters and NASA communications regularly wins awards for their web presence and their social media presence. I think the power of what they've been able to convey with images, Bill Ingalls, uh, photographs of spaceflight events on the ground and uh, space places. Um, and then I do think that they are thinking a lot about this next art, what they're calling the Artemis generation, the you know young people and how they might get invested in and involved in the next steps in human spaceflight and this uh, trip back to the moon. So it would be interesting at some point to see where there might be crossover with kind of fictional visions and the power of what Star Trek has been able to do. And then yeah, I have to say, um, you know, speculating about the future or keeping a hand in what's now, there's so much great Trek being done right now, right? Uh -huh. The, you know, between seeing Discovery come out, between Picard, you know, I just feel like it is astounding 55 years in the idea that this, you know, failed three season television show has spawned, you know, this universe of, uh -huh. you know, inclusion and imagination um, and vision, I think in ways that 
just as also in some very small ways doing some really important work. You know, there's a great scene in Discovery that really struck me where Stamets is talking to the doctor and the two of them are talking about a character who does not use gendered pronouns. And they kind of just, they have the whole conversation about them and they just smoothly, and I thought like, this is just like an object lesson and this is how you do pronouns mm-hmm. properly. And it wasn't a big, it was not, you know, a after school special or some very special episode where we're going to teach you about pronouns. It was just seamlessly woven into how they were working representation into the show. And I think, you know, things like that um, really are doing kind of very important cultural work. Definitely. And again, that's just like the way that you've, you're mentioning it. It goes very cyclically, very back to that conversation that Nichelle Nichols had with Martin Luther King Jr., right? Mm-hmm. You know, talk and, and, he, and he's talking to her about the need for representation, the need to see a future vision. And I think that's just, to me, it's amazing. It's just like every, every generation seems to have a new connection to Trek. And so it'll be really exciting to see what, you know, the young kids or the young 20-somethings who are watching Trek in this most recent form, what they go on to do. Um, and Mike and I were talking before you um, came on, Margaret, about how the background of his Zoom call is a scene from um, Star Trek, Pro- or it's a background for Star Trek Prodigy. Right, Mike? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this is the first, I'm like, it's not the first time, but like thinking about a kid, a show that's expressly for kids, mm-hmm. you know, that has Trek. I mean, that seems like so much fun. I guess Star Trek, the, the animated series was for kids as well. So it's not the first time there's been a Trek show like that, but. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Star Trek Prodigy just because it is geared towards that age group. And it's it's odd, like I, you know, it's not geared towards me, but I am looking forward to it just yeah. as much as I am the next season of Picard or Discovery just to see that new flavor of Star Trek and to maybe just pretend to be a kid again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So um, for both of you, do you have any upcoming projects that you'd like our listeners to know about? Mm, I don't have anything upcoming, but I'm sure Margaret has exciting things. So the biggest upcoming project that I'm working on is the rebuilding of the National Air and Space Museum. Uh, We are reopening the National Mall building to the public on July 31st, but we are still in the midst of the reconstruction and the transformation of that building on the National Mall. And the first exhibits, the new exhibits for that should open in late 2022. And we will be completed with the whole renovation of the entire building and all the new exhibits by uh, 2026. So that is going to keep me busy for the next five years. Um, (laughs) And then I've got a book manuscript that I've just finished in draft, which is my uh, cultural history of Americans' fascination with spaceflight. And it's very much rooted in the kinds of conversations that we've been having today about the connections between these imagined visions and, um, you know, and then how that has shaped what has been possible in terms of actual space exploration. Um, So I'm in the process of figuring out kind of how to shop that and how that might, and what that might look like in its final revision. So I'd like to think that it's very close to publication for being done. And I suspect that the reality is that there's still a lot of work ahead of me um, in getting that from the kind of draft manuscript into something that you might see on a shelf someday. But at some point, there will be um, another kind of bigger piece on the shelf someday. Well, fantastic. I very much look forward to that day when I walk into a bookstore and 
pick up that book. Um, it sounds like something that I would love to read and also to discuss with you again <laughs> one day. I will be happy to come back. <laughs> um, until then, uh, where can people find you on the internet to follow your thoughts and your work? I am available um, online. I'm on Facebook as Margaret Whiteycamp. I am on Twitter as at MGTW space um, because nobody can spell Whiteycamp really. Um, <laughs> so that just, and it was not going to fit into a Twitter handle easily. So, uh, and I am a kind of infrequent tweeter, but um, I enjoy uh, following along lots of other things. And, um, and Kate Mulgrew followed me today and I was Whoa. like, Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because of some uh, tweets I put out, I think uh, last week when we were celebrating Sally's night at the oh, museum yeah. and celebrating the uh, connections between Sally Ride and space exploration and famously Sally Ride was a great Star Trek fan. And when we went to her home and were gathering her artifacts and her archives for the Smithsonian, one of the things that I found in her desk was a communicator pin that came from Star Trek Voyager, which was actually a screen used prop that was given to her by Kate Mulgrew when they launched the show, the first American woman in space coming and promoting the show with the first woman as a full-time captain as the lead of the show. And, um, so uh, asking Dr. Tamil Shaughnessy, uh, Sally's partner, she said, oh, yeah, she was a Star Trek fan. And I was like, yes, I love it. <laughs> um, so, um, so we have had that on display at the museum. And I, I'm to yet another place where you've got these strong connections between Star Trek uh, and real space exploration in that, you know, Sally Ride was a Star Trek fan. I didn't know that. That's absolutely fantastic. Ingrid, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, I am around over on Twitter at, at Ingrid Rocket. Just, you know, Google that. You'll usually find me. But I, I think I'll definitely go after this and follow um, Kate Mulgrew's account. because This sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, how about you? Where, where can people find more about you and where you're doing things? Uh, yeah. So I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is MikeY. That's M-I-Q-U-A-I. Uh, and I tweet a lot about science and Star Trek predictably. <laughs> um, yeah. And so my last question for both of you is something that I've been asking all of my guests in 2021, because we're just coming out of this really, really hard year of, of going through the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the other cultural upheavals that, um, you know, we've, we've experienced and seen and learned a lot from. And this question is basically just what gives you hope for the future? And it can be related to Star Trek, it can be related to your work, or it can be related to neither of them and just something else in your life that gives you hope. So what is one thing that gives you hope for the future? Well, for me, it's always my kids. I've got three. Um, my oldest is 15 and is a real movie watcher. And so it's been fun to try to introduce him to uh, a lot of the science fiction that I have really loved. And he has been um, deep, deep, deep in the Star Wars universe of late. Um, and so it's been fun to have conversations across generations with that. And then um, my middle girl, um, who is 10, is still, I think, determined that she's going to be an astronaut and that she's going to be the first person 
person on Mars. So, um, yeah. uh, so the little guy, the nine-year-old isn't quite sure, uh, is as sure of what he wants to do, but she's had it in her head for a good long time that that's where she's going to end up. So, um, you know, if we can get her through fractions, then she's like halfway there. So, uh, <laughs> um, so that gives me hope, but, you know, it's always fun to get to do this kind of work and then share it with them and then see it reflected back in these interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I feel like I should give you a different answer. But like, I'm going to say I actually continue to find hope with watching old episodes of Star Trek. Like it's something it's, you know, for many of us, we've been doing lots of comfort viewing. And, you know, I really think that there is something just incredibly positive about the original series that I love watching. But as I talked to you about last um, time I was on, Mike, I found this most recent season of Discovery also very hopeful and um yeah, it just made me feel good about the future. Those are both fantastic answers. Um, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds. I had a blast speaking with both of you about this topic, learned a lot and had a lot of fun. So thank you again from the bottom of my heart for joining me for this hour and uh, taking the time out of your busy schedules to be here. This thank you so wonderful. much, Mike. Thank you. That was historian Dr. Margaret Weidekamp with special co-host Dr. Ingrid Okert on the history of women in space and the history of women in Star Trek. You know, there were approximately a billion more things I wanted to ask these two fabulously knowledgeable human beings, but alas, we ran out of time. Just don't be surprised if you hear their voices yet again on Strange New Worlds in a future episode. Between the recording of our conversation and now, I saw an article in The Atlantic written by science journalist Marina Corin about how one of the pioneering women who was training as an astronaut during the space program's earliest days is finally going to fly to space aboard a Blue Origin rocket. And I've put that article in the show notes for you to enjoy. Now, this Blue Origin astronaut selection might just be a clever PR stunt, but Margaret wrote to me saying, quote, I am delighted to hear that Wally Funk is finally going to get her shot to fly to space. Her enthusiasm, determination, and talent have always shown that she has the right stuff. It's great that the rest of the world will now be able to see that too. End quote. And those words honestly made me feel just warm and fuzzy about this news. So that's it for episode 117 of Strange New Worlds. Until next time, keep looking up and inspiring others to change the status quo. And I'll see you out there.